Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation podcast series. We're coming to you today thanks to generous support from individuals, donors, and our corporate partners, including Celgene. My name is Tricia, and I'd like to introduce everyone today. First, Robert Burleson, our communications manager. Hello, everyone. And I would like to introduce Dwayne Draper, who hails from South Carolina and who is a survivor of myelodysplastic syndromes known as MDS. So, hello, Dwayne. Hey, Bob. Hey, Tricia. Hello. Hi there. Well, let's get started. First, we'd like to know a little bit about you. One of the more nuts and bolts things is, can you tell us your age when you were diagnosed and your age now? Yeah, I was 58 when I was uh, both diagnosed and when I went through my stem cell transplant. Currently, I'm 67. Thank you. Can you just tell us, in general, what your life was like before you received the diagnosis, just what you were doing and what life was like at that pre-diagnosis point? Well, I was still working in my career. I was an executive client manager for uh, a large company calling on corporate clients in the Northeast at the time uh, living in New Hampshire. Um, Life was pretty normal, active, um, lived on 30 acres of woodland, so I had a lot of um, chores and things to do outside around the property. Um, When I was diagnosed, I was pretty much asymptomatic. Okay, so you... You were just uh, working in pre-retirement. Well, let me ask you, how long did it take for you to be be diagnosed with MDS? That is, when you first began to experience symptoms or something indicating that something isn't right, from that point to when the diagnosis was given, how long was that? Well, um, I had gone in to see my primary care physician in late August of uh, 2009 for an annual physical. And in addition to his regular exam, um, for whatever reason, he decided to order a CBC uh, blood test. Um, a couple of days later, he called me back and told me about all of my, all three of my blood levels being extremely low. So I went into a different lab had more blood work done, uh, same results. So uh, within a period of that physical and the CBC blood work and the actual diagnosis, which was done at Dana-Farber in Boston, uh, about a month had elapsed. Okay, that's all it was then, a shorter time than many. And Moving on, um, well, could you describe what the challenges were for you during this first phase? This is right soon after you were diagnosed um, were you, for example, receiving transfusions? And if so, you know, how many did you have? Well, after, as I mentioned, the diagnosis, final diagnosis for MDS, um, and I was in um, intermediate high uh, IPSS uh, risk category, um, they decided to push forward with uh, transplant fairly quickly. But I continued to work. Um I was traveling um, throughout the New England area, and uh, one particular business trip after dinner, I experienced some uncontrollable bleeding in my gums. So I went to a local hospital. They contacted my hematologist-oncologist at Dana-Farber, and that's when I received my first transfusion uh, for platelets specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, But over the ensuing months, 
as they took me down the road of uh, trying to line up transplant, um, I did have a number, not a lot, maybe, you know, two, three um, transfusions, uh, uh, you know, red blood cell transfusions. I don't believe I had any additional mm-hmm. platelet transfusions. So it was just a couple of them as things yeah. progressed towards a transplant. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you just uh, describe what happened next as yeah, as you move from this uh, pre-transplant phase and these uh, transfusions you've mentioned? Describe what happened up to and going through the transplant, just the process. As I mentioned, I was diagnosed at Dana-Farber in Boston, a world-class organization, obviously. Um, the company I was working for at the time, the uh, the insurance carrier that we had for our corporate insurance program, uh, did not recognize Dana-Farber as an approved transplant facility, which is pretty incredible. That is um, totally incredible. I, th- I think it <laughs> One really of the best came- in the world, and they're not yeah. recognizing it. I'm very surprised. I- yeah, I'm sure they just had not agreed on a compensation schedule of some sort. Um, at any rate, that kind of forced my hand to um, pursue, uh, and I was referred by my doctors at Dana-Farber to uh, people that they knew, doctors at Sloan Kettering in New York City. Um, so I got lined up with Sloan Kettering, and my wife and I actually um, went through the process of having to move from New Hampshire to the New York City area for the transplant and the uh, follow-up beyond that. We actually um, lived in a a, a rental house. We were fortunate and and found a nice rental house, but um, we were there for about five months before returning home to New Hampshire. So this was, of course, an extended break from working. Yes. Yeah, I was fortunate. The company that I worked for had a very liberal uh, disability program. Um, so that, that helped us out um, big time during that process. I actually returned to work about five to six months after the transplant, but um, out, out of work almost, almost six months. I gather, too, then, that it didn't take too long to find a donor for you. No, it didn't. Uh, my background or my uh, history uh, uh, ethnically is pretty much Northern European. My uh, hematologist oncologist at Sloan Kettering joked that probably just about any uh, fireman or policeman in New York City could be a donor. Okay. <laughs> um, but as it turned out, I had uh, close to a thousand potential donors in the National Marrow Donor Database. Whoa. That's astounding. So then it was just a question of contacting um, potential donors with the right match uh, to see who is still willing to um, to go ahead. And I think they went through two or three um, contacts before they settled on one that was still willing to, to be a donor. That's a part of the process that people some people don't know about unless you've been through it. Um, right. To switch uh, – topics or themes just a little bit can you ask can you tell us um during this period of time was there ever enough time for you to just feel discouraged or frightened or uh unsure yourself and if so how did you get through that well yeah i mean certainly uh it was pretty daunting um initially to be told my 
my doctor actually, after the uh, CBC blood work that he did um, on a Friday, I believe it was, and I was at the grill on a Sunday night uh, cooking dinner when he called me at home on a Sunday night. I said, well, this can't be good. Um, so fear set in initially when he told me all three of my blood counts were extremely low. And then, of course, the diagnosis at Dana-Farber and the, um, the description of, you know, what the potential options were. Um, there was, a, you know, a less intensive transplant procedure and the higher intensive transplant procedure, which uh, I was, that was the only procedure that I was eligible for based on my uh, condition. So we knew it was going to be intense. Um, they described how patients that go through the process they kind of divide up into thirds, you know, because the transplant process is very rigorous. Um, they said a third actually don't make it through the transplant. A third survive the transplant process, but then may relapse uh, on the MDS. And then the last third goes through the whole process and puts MDS behind them. And I was fortunate enough to fall into that last third. But, it, you know, to make the decision to move forward, I kind of felt like I didn't really have a lot of options. I knew what the options were for um, treatment uh, without transplant, and that would have only uh, extended my life by a few years. So it really was just kind of jumping in with both feet and, and setting fear aside. My experience goes back um, nine and a half years or so. Um, and I have read and kept up with some of the advancements um, in the industry and, and seen a lot more gene therapy-based solutions. And uh, even when I was diagnosed in 2009, I had known at that time that not, you know, much further back in time, you know, late 90s, mid 90s, maybe, it, this disease wasn't even given a name. It was just known as pre-leukemia. Right. So the advancements in the last 15 or 20 years have just been incredible. Breathtaking uh, what's been going on. You've talked a little bit about uh, uh, the treatment leading up to your transplant and the transplant experience. Can you talk a little bit about the recovery, how you felt, and did you have to do anything differently and any side effects that might have happened post-transplant? Oh, I had to do a lot of things differently. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the first hundred days post transplant, of course, is the uh, um, a, 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 a period of heightened sensitivity in terms of monitoring, um, you know, p- potential causes for infection, um, potential graft versus host disease, um, a number of things. So that first hundred days is is a, a very extreme marker. And, and so uh, both my wife and I were very cautious in terms of food preparation. Um, one of the major side effects for me in terms of eating, um, I always had a very good appetite, but uh, my appetite was affected um, quite a bit, mostly because I, I um, kind of lost my my taste buds. You know, food didn't taste right or didn't taste appetizing. And so I, I wasn't eating as much. I had to kind of try to force myself to, to eat, um, you know, good meals throughout the day. And, and so that was, that was a challenge for somebody that used to love to eat. Um, and also I'd, I'd never really been a napper before. Uh, I always felt like I was missing something if I took a nap, but 
both my uh, wife and my sister who was visiting um, for a week or two uh, forced me into afternoon naps every day. And that was very helpful. I just, I went and laid down every day for a couple, three hours to, you know, recharge my batteries a little bit. And then became a fan of naps. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I still don't do a lot of naps today, but uh-huh. during that process, the uh-huh. healing process, I learned to love my naps and appreciate them. Uh, you, you know, the old saying's kind of trite, but you need to listen to your body. Yeah. How, how long did it take before you started feeling normal again or what you would call normal? Um, well, it certainly, it was incremental in that first year, but I'd say it was, you know, it was a good six months to a year before I got to the point where I felt somewhat normal. Um, I lost a lot of weight in the process, but you know, it was temporary. I was able to put it back on. Um, one of the things that kind of spurred me on in my recovery was my transplant was done in January of 2010 and our son's wedding was in September of that same year, and he had asked me to be his best man. Wow. And we had to travel by plane uh, from Boston out to Colorado for the wedding. So, of course, that presented its unique challenges, as did any appearance in public, having to wear a face mask and gloves and all of that. But I'd say a good six months to a year before I felt – you know, if, for me to say that I was maybe back to 90%. Okay. Even now we're out a number of years. Are you still seeing any of your medical team just for follow-ups, even however infrequent? No, I'm not. Uh, my wife and I moved to South Carolina about three and a half years ago. But prior to that, as we were living in New Hampshire, I would go um, – Fortunately, I was able, after moving back home and having had the transplant at Sloan Kettering because of insurance reasons, I was able to do my follow-ups with the the doctors that I initially uh, met and worked with at Dana-Farber in Boston. So my regular checkups, which were every six months or so after I moved home at Dana-Farber in Boston and then got put out to annually, after five or six years, my... uh, oncologist, hematologist, the head of the transplant program at Dana-Farber told me, you know, everything's looking really good. Um, If you want to come back and see us a year from now, we'd love to see you. But if you're comfortable uh, and just make sure you check your CBCs from time to time, um, you you have that option as well. And so at that five, six-year point, um, I stopped doing my regular follow-ups. Okay. And now to ask about something that we occasionally hear about – from patients we speak with, uh, you got to meet your donor. Could you just tell yes. us a, a bit about how it happened and what that was like? Well, as you're probably aware, the standard procedure uh, after a transplant like that, uh, and I had an unrelated but matched donor, uh, matching 10 out of 10 um, HLA um, factors, which is pretty good, Um there's a stipulation that uh, donor and patient cannot communicate with each other or be identified to each other for at least a year. Correct. And, and then even after that, uh, both have to agree um, to be able to, to connect and communicate with each other. So I signed off on my paperwork. He signed off on his paperwork. And so we, um, we communicated with each other um, by email. Um, 
on occasion. And then, as I mentioned at the outset, when uh, we put together a, a road trip for a family reunion, we arranged to swing through Fort Worth, Texas, where uh, my donor lived, and be able to get together with him and and exchange um, experiences. Because I was I knew what he had probably gone through, but I wanted to get more specifics from him and how it went, and would he do it again? And and you know, thanked him profusely. Yeah, um, well, that must I'd, have been it, gratifying, rewarding. It really was. I, you know, I wanted to do something for him. Uh, he didn't have any children, so I, I couldn't offer to put his first child through college or anything. But um, I did get a watch, a nice watch, a commemorative watch that I had some engraving put on uh, on the back with the date of the transplant, and uh, presented that to him. What a nice uh, thing to do! Truly. Well, what a nice thing he did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I, now. Um, and he's a young, you know, he was 35 or so when, when we got together, um, healthy mountain biker. I mean, I really got some good stem cells, but it was interesting. <laughs> his, his story, he was in college at the time and he went, uh, stopped by a, a, a marrow donor booth. Um, they were having a, a benefit or, or some, maybe it was a, a college fair or something of that sort. And he, um, agreed to go into the donor database. He did the swab. And said, I even got a T-shirt, um, and it was like seven or eight years later after that experience that he was contacted to see if he was still interested in being a donor for me. Really? That, that's a gratifying story. Now, I'd also like to ask you, switching gears a little bit, uh, ask you how you found AAMDSIF and what of our services you used um, or any of the events you may have attended yeah, I, uh, when I found out that I was diagnosed with MDS, of course, um, you know, part of my brain went into research mode. Um, probably so much so that, that at one point I, I thought, "Well, I'm just I'm learning too much information. I got to back <laughs> away from this." Yes. But one of my primary sources was I, I ran across a AMDS uh, website online and, and, and a few others as well. But to think that there was an organization that was specifically, uh, focused and targeted on a very rare, not only MDS is a very rare, uh, blood cancer, but, uh, aplastic anemia and PNH as well. Um, spoke volumes to me. I thought these folks got to be the experts because this is, the number of people who get diagnosed with these diseases is very, very small percentage of the general population. Correct. Well, and then also, um, we learned that uh, you were, you know, giving it back, or as they say, paying it forward by being coming involved with our peer support network. Could you talk a little bit about how that happened and what your experience has been, how many people you've spoken with and things like that? Yeah, I, I learned about that, obviously, through the website and also through uh, interactions with Lee Clark um, and decided to be a peer support uh, network volunteer. I never um, spoke with somebody else that had gone through what I was uh, about to go through. And so I thought there's a lot of value to being able to offer my experience if somebody is wondering and they're now facing that same hurdle in their lives. So I, I went through the training um, with AAMDS and then um, would receive calls um, from p 
patients who may or may not have been, most of them were, you know, looking at the prospect of a transplant. And that was my specific uh, skill set or knowledge set, if you will. So you did get uh, to speak with uh, some people, maybe yeah, in a repeating fashion. Yeah, probably two, three times a year okay. initially in the mm-hmm. first uh, two or three years that I was volunteering to do that. Um, I haven't spoken with anyone recently, but I think um, because I'm so far out from my transplant, my experience, and there's so many changes yeah. that have occurred, is probably more yeah. appropriate than more uh, more recent patients and volunteers. Yeah, you're a long-term survivor serve, at this point. Serve that process, yeah. Could I ask you then also about our conferences, you attended one? Yes. Well, I attended oh, two. Okay. Yeah, a couple in, in the Boston area when we were still living in New Hampshire. <clears throat> and um, it, it was a great experience meeting other people that uh, had been through and were still going through or maybe recently diagnosed um, and going through the process of learning about MDS because all of the breakout sessions were segmented by disease. So you were in groups where you uh, interacted with other people that had MDS um, or their caregivers. Um, and I remember remarking at the first conference that I went to, and I, I think I've seen some uh, changes over the years with AAMDS and the conferences to, to focus a little bit more attention to caregivers and what they go through. Because my wife was just outstanding, you know, having to move away from home for six months. And, and so uh, I know now that there's more of a focus on caregiver um, breakout sessions as well. Um, but I, th- I found it very valuable to be able to exchange information with other people that were had gone through it or were beginning to go through it. So you and, were- and then listening to the experts, you know, the doctors um, that AEMDS has worked with over the years to present current findings and studies and that kind of thing. So you would recommend our conferences to newly diagnosed patients. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we certainly have heard a whole lot about your story today from the beginning through the move and the transplant, meeting your donor, the recovery, uh, your involvement with uh, our organization. I'd like to bring it to a close by asking you one, one more question, and that would be if you could boil it down to one thing, if, if there's one overall thought that you would like to share with other bone marrow failure disease or MDS patients who, again, are now where you were nine years ago? Yeah, I, I think um, the one thing that, that got me through that whole process in the, you know, the first few years was just maintaining a positive attitude. Um, you know, one of my favorite sayings through life has always been, it can always be worse. Okay. <laughs> and, and and even in that period of what I was dealing with, I kept telling myself it can always be worse. But maintaining a positive attitude and and that's tough to do a hundred percent of the time. So as part of that process, you need to rely heavily on your support network, on your wife, your husband, your kids, your extended family, and your friends. Um, one of the things that I did during the transplant when I was in Dana-Farber, I mean, Sloan Kettering for a month in isolation, was maintain a, an online uh, network or blog, if you will, through the Caring Bridge network. Oh, Caring yes. Bridge, certainly. And that allowed me to, to stay in touch with people and not feel so isolated. You can't 
let yourself feel isolated because um, that doesn't help you stay positive and stay focused on getting through the whole the whole uh, challenge in front of you. Well, thank you so much, Dwayne, for sharing your insight and just the timeline uh, and how your story has progressed and you're a long-term survivor now. So thanks for being with us today. And back to you, Tricia. Thanks, Bob. And thank you, Dwayne, for how you're making an impact on the lives of our listeners today. Well, I hope so. It's It's been a real process, that's for sure. And, and um, you know, anything I can do to help other people um, through what, what they're experiencing and stay positive, I'm glad to do that. Well, great. And thank you, listeners, for being here. As a reminder, the AAMDSIF helpline is here for you at 800-747-2820, option 2, or email help at aamds.org, where you can be connected to peer support network and other support groups. Please visit our website at aamds.org. And if you'd like to connect with peers online, you can join the confidential chat at marrowforums.org, which you can find through the website. We'll see you next time. So long.